Yeah, I told Fred, Fred's working down in Sunday school this morning, and, I, and he said, I hope it, he, said he, he hopes the sermon's good because he's going to listen to it online. And I said, it'll be better because you don't have to look at me when, when you... So, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I'm, I've, I've come to grips with it. So... Well, it's good to see everybody this morning, and um, if you don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here, and um, I'm, before we get going, let me just make a, I mean, like, three people came to me during the break and just like, hey, you should mention this. Uh, first of all, parking. Um, the parking lot directly across the street from our door here, the, um, the long, like right behind Two Dogs, that belongs to Two Dogs. They open at 10 o'clock, um, so don't park there and walk over here. Really bad testimony. Somebody from the church got chewed out this morning, so um, they're the ones that came and talked to me about it. They're like, hey, we should probably remind people. I don't think it was, it wasn't any Two Dogs person, it was another customer, but it's a poor testimony if we're taking up one of the business's parking lots that doesn't that belongs to that business, uh, uh, to come here. So please don't park in the two dogs parking lot. Um, I know that we used to be able to park there before they opened because we, we, the owner of the building was allowing us to do that. But since they've opened, please don't park there because they need that for their customers. There is a parking garage one block that way. I think it's 135 steps, not that I've counted. Um, <laughs> The reason why I've counted is because, and it wasn't, it wasn't just me. I took my youngest daughter with me, so it's not just because I have giant steps. Um, uh, the reason why, because I, I really believe this, and even though it sounds like I'm being sarcastic, if what God's doing here isn't worth walking like one block, um, find a different church. Like, <laughs> like I mean, seriously, like, uh, uh, I mean that with all genuineness. Um, I think that... Uh, when I was in Nepal, there's people, there's people just to be able to fellowship with, the, with other Christians will walk like four hours to come to church. Uh, and, and so there's other churches that have parking lots, uh, park within 135 steps to make it worth your while. Um, but uh, but uh, valet. <laughs> we would take church thing up a notch if we did valet. So. Uh, but yeah, um, please don't park in two dogs, uh, parking lot. Second thing, men's breakfast is coming up this Saturday, 8.30, right? 8.30 right here. So, um, any men, it helps us if you can register online, do the same thing that Morgan said, go to the website, go to our calendar page, find the men's breakfast and just, there's a register link when you click men's breakfast. That way we know how much food to have. And then lastly, it's great to see everybody here, um, you know, during our worship time, because all the kids are in here, it, like this morning, it got pretty tight. Like, I, I was watching kind of from the back there and seeing that, that people were having a time, you know, having a hard time finding seats as they came in, as they came in. So if you're here, like, uh, you know, you're, and, and you can, and, and I saw people doing this, so this isn't any sort of rebuke, but please scoot in to make room for people. Like, w- one of the things that we actually thought about when we bought these chairs, these chair cushions go all the way to the side, so it kind of makes a continuous seating surface. You can see that and say, like, ooh, that is pretty cool. Um, uh, <laughs> Which means that you can jam more people than the number of seats in a space. So if you've got littles and, and can help us pack in when you see us getting full, that would be helpful too. Um, that was more announcements than I typically give. But any questions about any of that stuff before I move on? It's nice that we are full. Yeah, like God's blessed us with this building. It's nice to see it being utilized well. So, um, but that's it. But So if you are just joining us, we, are be- we began... Actually, right before Advent, Paul preached uh, John, the beginning part of John 1, 
Um, this week I'm continuing to, f- and I'm going to finish chapter one of John. Last week we were in the middle section and now we're on the end section. So if, if you're new to the Bible, the book of John is in the New Testament, which is the second like third of your Bible. And um, it's a pretty long book and it's like, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So if you just kind of flip through that last third, you should probably be able to find it. We are in John chapter one. You know, in John, the, the gospel of John is an account of the life of Jesus. And I think oftentimes when we read the gospels and we, and we look at these accounts of the life of Jesus, we, we tend to think that they're history or that they're just history, like a history textbook would be that you read in school. But the They are history, and they talk about real historic people and real historic things and things that really happened, but they're more than just history. The gospel writers uh, are actually trying to make a point, and John, in the the information that he includes and in the information that he leaves out, um, is trying to make a case for us about who Jesus is. It's not just a a historical rendering of Jesus' life. He's actually like theologically arguing something to us about who the person of Jesus is, what he came to do. And, and then the third thing is not just history. It's, it's theological. It's, it's got purpose behind it. But he wants us to respond. He's writing so that we respond and that it changes our life. You know, John chapter 1, he made the case that, that in Jesus is life. He's the pre-existent God. He's the creator of all things. And he's the one in whom we find life. We saw that in the first part of, of John chapter 1. The second thing we saw is that as we looked at John the Baptist's testimony is that, is that John the Baptist declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And by declaring that he was the Lamb of God, he's saying that Jesus is the one that makes atonement for our sin. He pays the price that sin demands. Because in this world, like, sin has created darkness and, and death to fall over this earth. And the wages of sin is death. And what, what John was saying when he says that Jesus is the Lamb of God, he's saying that all of the Old Testament sacrifices, the, the Passover lamb, the, I mean, and we'll, and we'll see even in today's text, the law and the prophets, they're all pointing to the arrival of Jesus and that the coming of Jesus sig- signals in a new era, a new era of his work in this world. And so, jo- so John's making the case for us that like, our sin is dealt with in Jesus. Last week, we also saw that, that Jesus gives the Spirit, that he gives new life to us. And in, and in this, the section we're going to look at today, verses 35 through 51, we're going to see like Jesus calling like five of his disciples. He's going to call five disciples to follow him. Or actually, more accurately, five people are going to start following Jesus. He only actually directly calls one of them. Five people are going to start following Jesus in this text. And, and again, that's more than just a historic account of like how these people found out about Jesus. What John's doing is he puts these, these accounts of these people uh, that, that choose to follow him is he's, he's telling us something about what it means to follow Jesus and he's illustrating it through these people. You know, and usually I have an outline. Um, I see some of you guys taking notes out there. Usually I have an outline, but this text doesn't really, I felt like if I gave it an outline, it would just be kind of imposing something on it because it's one of those texts, it's like a a snowball that starts rolling down the hill and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes. And, And it's broken out over two days. So if you really, really need an outline, you can just go day one, day two. Um, uh, seems kind of anticlimactic to put that on the screen. Um, but it's really just this story of how the, how 
people came to follow Jesus and what that means for us this morning. So please stand with me as I read the text, um, John 1, verses 35 through 51. Then we'll pray and, um, and we'll get into our study together. This is God's word for his church. Again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two of them who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for um, the fact that you use your word by your spirit to give life to your people, and, and that life is found in Jesus. And so, Father, I just ask that you would allow me to proclaim him and proclaim what it means to follow him um, this morning so that we could we could just grow in our commitment to you. And, and if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I just pray that you would um, extend that invitation to come and see in their heart and that they would come to you this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, as we get started uh, in verse 35, it says, again, the next day, John was standing, and he's talking about John the Baptist there. And this day starts just like it did the day before. He sees Jesus walking. And, and when he sees Jesus walking, he makes this declaration. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. And I talked about this already, that, that that statement of John declaring that Jesus was the Lamb of God is a statement saying that all of the Old Testament, all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the sacrifices, the temple, the priests, the kings, the prophets, they were all pointing to the arrival of the hope of Israel that was going to be embodied in a person, Jesus Christ. And when John declares that to them, they're like, he's like, this is the one that takes away the sin. And this is from the, verse up, the, the section up above, um, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's interesting that he says sin of the world. He doesn't say the sin of all people, which is true. He takes away all of our individual sin, but he's also the one that takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that will ultimately overthrow and do away with the curse that's settled upon this planet. 
that we've invited into it. You know, and, and John understood his ministry. If you were here before Advent, you know, in the section that Paul preached, um, John's ministry, I think it's, this is in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. In verse 7, it says, He came for a witness that he might bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. John understood what his ministry was, and his ministry was to point people to Jesus, to point people to the light, the one who was the life of men. And as soon as he saw the Lamb of God, he says, hey guys, look, there's the Lamb of God. And his two disciples did what they should do, and they got up and they started following Jesus. You know, the story's interesting, though, because apparently Jesus didn't even know they were following him at first, because then it says in verse 36, and he looked... um, Oh, verse 37, verse 38. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, what do you seek? So these two guys start following Jesus. Jesus turns and says, oh, what do you guys seek? And it's this loaded question, right? Like, what do you guys really, really want? And you would think, like, they would come back with something profound, you know? Like, I want to find eternal life. I want to, you know. And they come up with this interesting response. They, and, and they said to him, Rabbi, verse 38, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Like, hey, we just want to know what neighborhood you live in. Like, really? You know, a lot of commentators, like, debate this. Like, and and uh, I was reading a bunch of stuff, and they're like, yeah, the, the disciples just didn't know what to say, so they just kind of blurted something out. Like, or, or uh, uh, they were just trying to be polite I think there's more going on than, than that. I think what John's telling us is that these guys, as they were following Jesus, they were disciples of John the Baptist. They knew that, that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, the fulfillment of all of these things, had something to say to them. They called him rabbi, teacher. And they knew it was more than just a, hey, just give us a quick tweet that we can take and go on our way. Just give us a quick blog post. Just a... Yeah, send me an email, or we just want to show up at one of the services and get something and then go on our merry way. No, they understood that if they were going to learn from Jesus, they needed to stay with him. And they wanted to be like, where are you staying? It's an interesting word that John uses. He uses the word that's often translated in the, in, in the Gospel of John as abide. Where are you abiding? Which is kind of a loaded response too. Where are you abiding? Because the disciples knew that if they were going to like benefit from everything that Jesus had to offer, they had to be with him. They had to abide with him. That, that the life that he had to give was something that, that uh, was more than just a, a quick fix. In fact, John talks about this, or Jesus talks about it. John records it for us in John chapter 15. Jesus is talking to his disciples like immediately before getting like betrayed and and uh, then led off to be crucified. He tells them this, using the same word, that word of, that's translated here, staying, that's often translated abiding. Jesus says this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. 
Jesus is saying is that this path of discipleship, of following him, of, of fulfilling our purpose in this world is impossible unless we abide in Jesus, unless we live in him, unless we stay with him, which is exactly what they did. They showed up there and then they stayed with him that whole day. It needs, we need to abide. But let me just make a quick point of application. In order for them to do that, they also had to leave something. They ditched John. Right? John's like, behold, the Lamb of God. John had been mentoring them. John had, they were disciples of John, it says. In fact, the only time the word disciple is used in this whole section is when it's talking about the disciples of John. They had been learning from John. They had been following John. They had been helping John. They had been, uh, like, being formed by John. Jesus arrives. They give that all up, and they begin to follow him. And fortunately, John was one that pointed them towards Jesus. But I think we need to come to grips with something this morning. Like, all of us are being formed by something. All of us are being our disciples of something. We're, we're, we're being shaped by messages that come to us in every way, shape, or form. We're being shaped by our values that we embrace. We're being, and, and the reality is, if, we're, if you're going to abide in Jesus, more than likely you're going to have to give something else up. You're going to have to leave John or whatever else you're making a priority so that you can spend time with him. You can't abide. By definition, abiding requires time with Jesus. So I think one of the things that John's trying to reveal to us here is like part of following Jesus is, is being like immersed in him like the, and being connected to him, finding your life in him like the vine from the, like the branches from the like vine. If you're cut off, Jesus went on to say in John 15, you're just going to wither and die and not bear any fruit. So a first lesson, I think, from these two, like at this point, nameless disciples of John the Baptist is that, is that we need to Abide, And I guess the question I just want to submit to you is, what do you need to leave behind in order for you to abide deeper in Jesus this year? What do you need to leave behind? John's disciples left something really good. There's nothing bad about John the Baptist ministry. It just wasn't Jesus. Some of you guys probably have to leave something that isn't good. Some of you guys might need to leave behind some things that are good, but they're just, they're just undermining what's best. Like, what do you need to leave behind so that you can stay with Jesus like these two guys did? The story moves on in verses 40 through 42. It says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. So here's an interesting thing. So all of a sudden we find out that one of the, those guys that was a disciple of John the Baptist that now is following Jesus is this guy by the name of Andrew. And Andrew, it says, it, it's interesting what it says. It says he first went and found his brother. He's like, man, we found the Messiah. I've got to tell my brother, right? So he, I don't know when he like, like leaves this hanging out with Jesus, but he goes and finds um, Simon Peter. 
And he says, hey, we found the Messiah. So here, he was, he was called son of, he was called the Lamb of God. He was called Rabbi. Now he's called the, the, the Messiah. That word Messiah, if you were here when we studied through 1 Samuel, um, was first used by Hannah as she was praising God for like lifting her up out of her um, like sorrow and out of her like shame. And she spoke about how, how God would anoint his coming king and how that king would establish righteousness and justice upon the earth. And how that king, that king would remain. And ever since that day that Hannah like, praised God in those terms, like that term Messiah has continued to kind of build like, deeper and deeper meaning and richer and richer meaning. And at this point, like, the hope of Israel is all embodied in that term Messiah, the anointed one. We saw last week that Jesus was not just anointed by oil like the kings before him, but he was anointed by the Spirit of God. The anointed one has come. The hope of Israel has come, Peter. Come check him out. And then what happens is really interesting. And he brought him to Jesus, verse 42, and Jesus then immediately changes his name. He says, you are Simon, son of John, but from now on, you're going to be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Peter is the Greek word. Cephas is the Aramaic word. And Simon was his old name. So Jesus immediately gives him this new name, which is interesting because the idea of naming someone is this idea that, that you need to know them. You need to, you need to understand something about what, what, who they are and about what they are, what, like what God's going to do through them. And Jesus immediately upon seeing Simon says, like, oh, I'm going to change your name to Peter. Like Peter, as he follows Jesus, like establish this all of a sudden had this new identity. And he not only had a new identity, but like it's this identity that's like rich with like purpose. Because look what it says in verse 40. Verse 40 is really interesting. One of the two who heard him speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So, he, so John, the writer of the gospel, introduces us to Andrew in terms of Simon Peter. But Simon Peter hadn't been called Peter until like after this. So what John's assuming is that his readers have already heard about Simon Peter. They already know who he is. That's why, and he's more famous than Andrew. That's why he introduces Andrew in terms of his brother, Simon Peter. Does that make sense? So what he's saying here is this renaming is is meant to be understood in light of everything that we've seen God do through Simon Peter. In fact, we find out that, that Simon who, who Cephas, Peter, Simon Peter, became one of the foundational members of the church. Like God built this new body of people, like, and, and he was a key leader through that whole time. That when God, when Jesus renamed him in that moment, he, he knew what he was going to accomplish through him. He knew all of Simon's like failures and foibles and weaknesses and and if you read the Gospels, there are many. He's the one that probably gets the worst rap of all the, of all the apostles in the, in the Gospels. You know, he cuts people's ears off. He says dumb things. He denies Jesus three times, right? Like, but what John's telling us is that Jesus knows, like, his followers. He knows them before, like, they even knew that he knew them. We'll see that in just a minute. And he, when you follow Jesus, you, you get a new identity and you get new purpose. That's what happened with Simon Peter. 
changes his name, and he, and he had great things planned of what he was going to accomplish through Peter. You know, I don't think it just applies to, like, Peter or the apostles. In fact, Paul writes about this in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. It might be a verse familiar to some of you if, you're, if you've been in, studying the Bible for a long time. But 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 says this, For the love of Christ controls us. This is the apostle Paul speaking. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. For even though we had known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him this way no longer. Therefore, listen to this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Like when when a person genuinely places their faith in Christ and relies completely upon him, for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life and for all of those things that Jesus promises. Scriptures teach us that we are a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. There's a new identity. And Paul goes on, and we'll talk about this at the end, and talks about this new purpose that we have. You know, I wonder what it would look like if each of us here at Creekside... As we, as we, like, committed to abiding more with Jesus, being shaped more by presence with him, also, like, asked ourselves the question, like, what, like, what does it mean that I am a new creature, that God has made me new, and that old things have passed away? I've got a new identity in him, and I've got this new purpose in him, and that we walked forward in, in, in confidence at, um, in our identity and the purpose that he has for us. What would that look like if every single one of us did that this year? Kind of come to the end of that first day there in verse 42, and then verse 43 kicks off the second day, so it's our second big point, day two. Um, that's for the note-takers, and that was sarcastic. Um, The next day it says that Jesus purposed to go forth into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So here we go is that the very next day Jesus finds Philip. We don't really know anything about Philip at this point. And he says, follow me. And Philip does. And then Philip's like, man, I need to go find my friend Nathaniel. So he goes and finds Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, um, hey, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets have wrote. Like this is the one that, that is, is ushering in the new era. This is the one that's fulfilling all the Old Testament. He's the one that accomplishes what, what John says in John 1.17. It says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Like, He's bringing in this era of grace and of truth and of life. We found him of whom the law and the prophets spoke. It's interesting. It's not just the prophecies. All of the law speaks of him too. And I said this, like sacrifices, the temple, the priesthood, the king, you know, all of it. I love what happens next because what 
what Philip says is that all of that is embodied in a person, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Throughout this text, there's going to be seven names, seven titles that are given to Jesus. We already saw, we already saw the Lamb of God. We saw Rabbi. We saw Messiah. Yeah, Rabbi and teacher are the same. We saw Messiah. Those are all like, like rich, laden with like meaning sort of statements. And then this one is just like really just down to earth, practical, like human. He's Jesus from the city of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Right in the middle of this list is this like really human, like anchoring it in time, space, reality. But what Philip is telling Nathaniel is that all of the Old Testament is embodied in this guy that lives in Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel just couldn't get past that. Like, the whole thing about him being the embodiment of all the Old Testament just blew right over him. Because look at how he responds. Uh, Verse 46, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It's this statement of, of, like, complete prejudice and complete, like, skepticism. Like, really? Like, Nazareth? That would be like trying to convince like a, an Oregon State grad that the Messiah came from U of O, right? Like, <laughs> or vice versa. I, yeah, I don't know if it was like college rivalries between Bethsaida and Nazareth or what, what, what the deal was. But like Nathaniel was like, give me a break. Nobody's going to come from Nazareth. And Philip's response was just great. Come and see. It's this response that we see over and over again in this text. Come and see. And then Jesus, verse 47, saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Most of your translations probably read deceit. You know, of all, I don't really know of many times when Jesus sees somebody and just right out of the gates commends him. But Nathanael's one of those guys. And what he's saying is like, man, behold, he's like, everybody look at this guy. He's an Israelite indeed. He's what should embody like the people of God because in him is no guile or deceit. He has no ulterior motives. He's not duplicitous. He's not, he's not double-tongued saying one thing one way and another thing another time. He just tells it like it is or at least like he says it is or like, at least like he thinks it is, right? Israelite indeed. So I just want to encourage you. If you're one of those people, and Rachel lives with one of them, um, that is always getting in trouble because, like, you tend to just, like, speak your mind. You guys know what I'm talking about? Those, those people? Steve. Um, who, who, like, speaks your mind probably before thinking, like, just kind of lays it all out there, who's never short of opinions. I, I heard a, a, a pastor friend of mine was talking about another theologian that he had been in a debate with, and he said, he said, well, somebody asked him about like this debate. He says, well, what I can say about him is that he might not always be right, but he's never in doubt. Um, so, which I thought was pretty funny. If you're one of those people that always like kind of puts your foot in your mouth, like, and I know this from experience, and I need to keep learning it, like, yeah, there's lots of place for people like you and me to grow in wisdom and in grace and in humility so that like, what we communicate like can be received from people. But know this, like Jesus commends Nathaniel because 
he's a guy that what you see is what you get. In him is no guile. There's no deceit. And for all of you people that like tend to not speak and like tend to minimize and stuff, I think like you can grow from Nathaniel's example too. Like maybe you should like with humility and wisdom speak up more. Because Jesus commends Nathaniel for this. And interestingly enough, commends Nathaniel after Nathaniel just burned him down for being from Nazareth. In fact, we see this. Look what happens. Because Nathaniel is apparently this direct guy because Jesus commends him, verse 47. And Nathaniel, verse 48, said to him, how do you know me? So the, the cool thing about Nathaniel is he doesn't deflect, oh, I'm not really that great. Or, oh, I just like lied on my taxes last year. Or I just like... He doesn't minimize. He doesn't deflect. He doesn't do anything. He just goes right at Jesus. How do you know? Right? And then Jesus responds, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He said, remember just a little bit ago when you were chilling under the fig tree and Philip came up to you and said, Hey, found the Messiah. And you said, right? Like this whole, like Jesus, is, he says, I saw you. Jesus knew everything that Philip, I mean, that Nathaniel was thinking. He saw Nathaniel, and he invites him to come follow him anyway. Nathaniel's skepticism. One of the things that you can affirm about Nathaniel, even though he kind of came out, like, led with, like, doubt and led with skepticism and even led with some prejudice, is that he was willing to come and see. Nathaniel's like wrestling was honest wrestling. He didn't just say, uh, what could come from Nazareth? I'm going to keep playing my Xbox, right? Like he actually came and honestly investigated for himself. So if you're here and you don't know what you think about Jesus, or maybe you even just like outright reject Jesus, or maybe you, maybe you uh, are skeptical of the claims of Jesus, that's okay. Jesus can handle it. In fact, Jesus welcomes that. The call from Philip, I'll I'll give to you the same call that Philip gave. Come to Jesus and see. And I said this last week. We're going to be going through this book. And starting next week, John's going to start building his case. He's still kind of laying out everybody, everything that Jesus is. He's going to start building his case next week. So come and see. Read the book for yourself. Pray that Jesus would reveal himself to you in it. Because life is found in Jesus. And, and the Bible has proven itself over and over and over again that when, that when it's under the toughest scrutiny and the deepest skepticism, it always emerges. And Jesus always emerges as being who he claims to be. So I invite you to the same thing. Come and see. Conversation continues. Verse 49 Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Here we get two more titles. He's the lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world, the one who ushers in this new era. He's rabbi, the one who embodies the truth of God. He's Messiah, like the hope of people of God. He's Jesus, son of Joseph, born in Nazareth. He's a real historic figure that came to accomplish something that he did. And here, Nathaniel says, just off of the fact that, that Jesus knew, like, 
what had happened. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And that both of those terms, again, they're, they're just like titles dropped out. But as the Bible unfolds those, they just get deeper and deeper and richer and richer in meaning. And that term son of God could, could be interpreted a whole bunch of different ways. And I doubt at this moment in Nathaniel's life that Nathaniel understands like the intricacies of the Trinity and understands like the, the the theological richness of like the fact that God came in the flesh and the person of Jesus. The Old Testament actually ties those two things together, like the, the coming one being God's son and the coming one being king, um, multiple places in the Old Testament. One of them is in, um, I have it on the screen, let me see. It's in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. And if you were here in our, in our study of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel talked about, one of the things it talked about was the rise of King David um, and how God like, brought King David onto the throne. And then in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David. David was asking if he could build a temple, and God's like, no, not you. But then he makes this promise, and, and it's a promise that came to be like, directed at Jesus. Look at what he says. When your days are complete, David... And when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. He'll build a new temple and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. You also see it in Psalm chapter 2. I don't have that on the screen, but you see it in Psalm chapter 2 where God says, do homage to the son lest he come and be angry and you perish in the way. Like Psalm 2 speaks about the coming king that's going to come and bring justice upon the earth as being the son of God. And so what Nathaniel's saying is he's just acknowledging like the lordship of Jesus at this point. Like you are the king. You are this promised one. The one promised to David, I'm going to follow you. Jesus' response is interesting. He says, because I said to you, verse 50, that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's like, like one of the cool things about Nathaniel too, he's apparently a pretty black and white guy. He's like, what, Nazareth? Okay, I'm, I'm all in, right? And then Jesus is like, really, just that one thing and you believed? Like you're going to see so much greater You know, I think what Jesus is telling Nathaniel is like, Nathaniel, like, keep following me. Because if you keep following me, you're going to see more and more and more and more of my work and my glory. And I'm going to talk about what he's, in just a minute, what he's specifically referring to there. You're going to see more and more of my glory in following me. Nathaniel believed, but he had so much to learn. What that means for us this morning, too, is that the path of following Jesus is never meant to be like a static thing. That's why there's this come and see, follow me. We're always supposed to be growing, and I don't think like we will ever get to the point in our life where there isn't something of the, the person and work and grace and truth of Jesus as it presses into every single area of our life that we need to grow in. It's like you believe and you're going to see so much greater things. And he, and he says this weird thing. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Something that happens in verse 51 that we can't see in our English translations is the word you there. 
It says, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. That word you is in the plural. He's talking to Nathaniel, but then he kind of lifts up his gaze and he says, truly, truly, I say to you all. Right? All y'all. If you believe and follow me, you will see greater things than that. Y'all. And then he says, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a reference back to the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. And it's a story where Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel, it's Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, and from Jacob came the 12 tribes. Jacob had, had been a deceiver. He had been lying to, he had lied to his dad to steal the birth of the right from his brother Esau. Um, he drew, yeah, if, you're, if you grew up in Sunday school, you'll probably remember like the old, they killed a goat, I think it was, and put it, because Esau was hairy, and uh, he, was, he was like a mama's boy, and he wasn't hairy. Um, and so he, 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 maybe he shaved, I don't know. Um, that's kind of weird. Uh, I don't know why I said that, but we'll just keep going. So he wrapped, uh, he wrapped a goat skin around his arm, and when his dad, who was pretty much blind, he came in and he pretended to be Esau, and, and the dad was like, man, I don't know, if that's, let me feel your arm. And he felt his arm, and he's like, oh, you are Esau. And so then he, he stole the birthright from his brother. He takes off, he leaves, and then he has this dream. It's in Genesis 28, I guess, Genesis 28. And he has this dream, and in the dream, there's this ladder that it says it comes and touches the earth and it went up to heaven and the Lord was standing beside the, that ladder and he was speaking and the angels of God were ascending and descending, the exact same expression that Jesus is using. And, and there's this crazy dream and one of the things that God says to Jacob in this dream, you know, interestingly enough, after he had just deceived his father in context with Nathaniel not being deceiving, uh, it's interesting, after he had just deceived his father, he tells Jacob, he reiterates the promise that he had made to Abraham. And he said, in your seed, Jacob, like all the peoples will be blessed. Jacob awakes from his dream, and this is what happens. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? Listen to what he says. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is where, like, God dwells. This place where the angels were ascending and descending. This is the gateway into heaven, this place where the angels were ascending and descending. And then Jesus says, he takes that and he says, the angels are ascending and descending aren't in a place. Who do the angels ascend and descend upon? What does it say? On Jesus himself. You know what Jesus is saying? You know what, Nathaniel? You're going to see the fulfillment of what Jacob was dreaming about. Jacob, the patriarch of this, new, of this people of God, you're going to see this birth of this new people, the church. You're going to see the angels of God ascend on me. And I am the new temple. I am the gateway to heaven. And you're going to understand that, Nathaniel. And it's going to be so much greater than just this little trick that I did when I called you out for dogging me for being from Nazareth. I am the presence of God. 
I am the one through whom he worship, and I am the gate. Interesting. I'm not sure if I'm going to try to preach all of chapter 2 next week or just the first half of chapter 2. But the second half of chapter 2, guess what Jesus claims to be? He claims to be the temple. He says, if you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And, he's, and the apostles tell us he was speaking about the body. He is the temple of God. John chapter 10, guess what he says? I am the door. I am the gate. And Philip, you're going to learn, or Nathaniel, you're going to learn so much more. So I think it's important for us. You know, it's important for us as we, as, you know, wherever you are in your walk with the Lord. Again, if you haven't even, like, put your faith in him and you're just a skeptic like Nathaniel was, I'm glad you're here. If, you're, if you just began to follow the Lord this year, or have you been following him your whole life? You know, like, your life is meant to be, like, dynamic and abiding in Jesus and learning from him as your rabbi and, and understanding more and more of who he is, of coming to greater and greater trust in him as Messiah. He's the Lamb of God. He's rabbi. He's Messiah. He's son of God. He's king of Israel. He's Jesus, son of Joseph. A real historic person. You know, and I, so I think the first, the first uh, point of application here is I kind of like you know, try to bring this to a close is keep following him and keep pursuing him and keep abiding in him and don't get distracted by everything else. And if, there, if your life is so filled with distraction that you, don't, that you cannot do that, like you're going to need to make some decisions. Is Jesus worth following or not? Because this whole half-hearted thing like Jesus talks about that. You can't serve God and money. Either you'll love one master and hate the other, or you'll hate one and love the other. Make a commitment. At the very least, make a commitment to like keep like trying to discover if he's worth following. You know, the second point of application, and I hope you've noticed this already, is that with the exception of Philip, every single person in this text that came to know who Jesus was found out from someone else that they knew. John the Baptist, I guess he's kind of an exception, but he even said in the text we saw last week that he didn't know who he was, but then when, but God had actually told him when the Spirit of God, so he kind of found out when the, the Spirit fell on Jesus. But you can include John in that, but Simon Peter found out from Andrew, Nathaniel found out from Philip. There's this the people that are making the invitation were brothers and friends and people that lived in the same city. You know, the witness of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish, born on the lips of his followers, is critical is what John's telling us. That's how people found out. That's how we found out today is because the people that have come before us were faithful in that. Now, if you're here and you're like, like, how many of you guys feel super confident about your like, evangelism and telling other people about Jesus and like, I don't have any need to grow in that whatsoever? Bummer, I was wishing we had somebody I could. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and guilt you like, you're bad children. You need to, like, here's, like, four things you need to tell people and go tell everybody this thing and be super awkward about it and, like, right? Because it goes deeper than that. 
Like the question, look what Philip says back in verse, um, verse 41. He found first his own brother, like he found him and said, we have found the Messiah. Ironically, he didn't find the Messiah. The Messiah found him. It says that Jesus went and found Philip, but Philip's taking credit. Oh, like I found Jesus, right? Like, but he's excited. He's like, I have found the Messiah. You know, I think oftentimes like our unwillingness to like tell other people about what we found is that maybe we're not convinced that we've found anything. Like, what have you found in Jesus? It's a question to ask today. Like, what have you found? Oh, I found that I need to go to church and have one more thing to add to my schedule that's really kind of burning me out. Yeah, don't tell people about that. What have you found in Jesus, and is it worth telling other people about? And I said this last week, too. If you haven't found anything, then you better ask yourself, like, what is this thing that you're doing? If it's just empty religion showing up in church on a Sunday, come and see who Jesus really is. But I think that there's, the reason why I want to pick at that, and I've, some of you might have heard me use this quote before, but there's this quote from C.S. Lewis that I think really speaks to this. Um, and he's speaking about, about it in worship. But listen to what he says. He says, he's, and he's talking about praise. But before I read this, I think, I just want to make the connection that I don't think that there's that much difference between praising God like in song or in worship and praising God by telling other people about him. I don't think that there's a huge difference in those things. And and this is why. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Let me just stop there. Any San Francisco? Right there. Right? He's got his hat. He's repping. Are you a San Francisco sweatshirt? And it's so old because you've been a fan for a while. Right? Have you guys talked to anybody about the game this morning? Back there? C.S. Lewis's point, Right? Like, you praise what you, like, love. You speak about what you love. Players praising their favorite game. He goes on. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because, we praise not, because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. We all know what that's like. You, whatever it is, you know, like, you know, whatever that thing is you love, the game, you've got to talk to somebody about the game. Like, oh, you tasted this great wine. You've got to, like, share that with somebody else. Oh, like this new restaurant. Or, oh, did you see, let me show you that picture of my grandson. I was going to put him up. Uh, <laughs> just because it would fit in and I could do the whole obnoxious grandpa thing. Because, it's like, praise unexpressed actually kind of robs it of some of its joy, Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Nathaniel, for Nathaniel, or for Philip, I mean, for Philip, just to say, like, I found the Messiah. I found the hope of Israel. I found the one that all of the laws and prophets spoke about. So I'm just going to chill and forget my friend Nathaniel. 
So I just wanted to pick at it because I think our lack of being willing to just invite other people to come and see Jesus might stem from the fact that we don't really know what we've found or we don't really believe what we've found or maybe we've never found it to begin with. Because all like enjoyment, like what does C.S. Lewis say, like spontaneously overflows in praise. We have to tell people. So I, I think I just want to kind of just drill that in. And Yehuda, you can come up to bring the band to close us. I, if there's one thing that I think that would just transform us as a church is that each and every one of us here would just commit to pursuing Jesus, following Jesus, come and see what Jesus has to offer, abide in Jesus, stay with him, let him reveal his glory to us and his goodness to us and greater things than we've experienced in the past and, and then let that enjoyment in Jesus overflow in praise. So Yehuda, why don't you close us and then I'll close this in prayer. It's interesting what Jesus says in the book of Revelation this is actually John, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John to us, the, what we just looked at. He writes to the church, and he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. And then Jesus himself speaks and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, he who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's who we worship. He's God alone from before time began. So let me just pray. Father, I just thank you for Jesus Christ. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth who's called us to be part of his kingdom. And Father, I just ask that you would help us to live in accordance with that because he is your son. He is our king and um, we're his people. So please help us to pursue you this week and and um, out of the joy of our heart to, to like let others know what we found. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.